Assalamu alaikum. Greetings of peace. Uh, welcome to this edition of the Renovatio podcast. My name is Safira Ahmed and I serve as an editor at Renovatio, the journal of Zaytuna College. Today we'll be discussing some topics uh, that have always um, been important, but this year they have taken on far more significance in light of many unfortunate events. So our topic today revolves broadly speaking around race and religion. We hope to explore whether what is known as critical theory and critical race theory, frameworks that are deeply embedded in academic circles, are antithetical, whether these are antithetical to Islam and for that matter to religion itself. Or are these theories simply neutral analytical frameworks for understanding power and oppression? We will also look at how Muslims can fight against injustice and oppression while conforming with Islamic teachings and the Islamic tradition. To discuss these areas of concern, we have invited two excellent guests who not only have studied these issues and given them a lot of thought, but they also have come from different perspectives. So we expect some, ground, <clears throat> some common ground in this conversation, God willing, but also some divergence in their views. And this is in line with our goals at Renovatio. We hope to present ideas related to faith and modernity, ideas that merit public consideration, and we also hope to serve as a forum committed to dialectic and reasoned argument in conversations among scholars of different faiths and, and perspectives. So let me introduce our guest today. Um, Dr. John Ardali is an associate professor of religious studies at the College of the Holy Cross in Massachusetts. And he specializes in Quranic studies, interfaith dialogue, and philosophy. He, is, uh, he was an editor of the Study Quran, and uh, I'm thrilled to say that he also serves on the Board of Advisors for Renovatio and is a somewhat regular writer in Reno at Renovatio. He wrote an article recently um, uh, in a Renovatio issue that was titled, Muslims are not a race. It was more of a critique of the anti-Islamophobia campaign and its assumption that uh, Islamophobia is a form of racism. We will use some of the ideas presented in this article as a point of departure in our conversation today. And if you haven't read that article, I would urge you to go to our website, renovatio.zaytuna.edu, and find um, the article. It's called Muslims Are Not a Race. Our other special guest today is Dr. Khalil Abdul Rashid. He is the university Muslim chaplain at Harvard University. He's also the instructor of Muslim studies at Harvard University. Divinity School and a public policy lecturer at the Kennedy School of Government at Harvard. Among the courses he teaches are Islam in America and Strategic Diversity and Leadership. So let's begin. Uh, I want to dive into this with a core question uh, to both of you, but we'll begin with <clears throat> Dr. Jonner. Dr. Jonner, <clears throat> you have said in your article that uh, you talk a lot about critical race theory in your article. And what you have said is that it's, it seems to me that it's a critical race theory and its world vision of the world are essentially based on a set of assumptions about the world. And the question for you is, can you talk about the perspective um, on this, your perspective on this? First of all, define a little bit of what critical theory is, and if you would also tell us why you think some of the assumptions are antithetical to religion in general and Islam as well. 
thank you, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Uh, well, um, it's a very complicated topic, actually, because um, you know there's a set of factual assumptions that need to be taken into account, and then there's a question of theoretical approaches, and then you might say also a set of priorities um, that one has to deal with. Now, um, you know, the typical way in which critical race theory is sometimes talked about in Muslim circles is that it's a kind of a tool. Um, so the idea is that there are scholars who have been able to, let's say, identify certain patterns in, uh, in the law, in legal practice, uh, certain patterns in politics, um, in cultural life, um, and that they've been able to, as it were, um, locate these kind of regularities and are offering in their writings about race and society um, a, a way of understanding cause and effect, a way of understanding um, how to explore um, and how to think about race um, with an assumption that this is a, is, is a kind of a tool. Uh, it's a kind of a theoretical um, instrument that we can use to kind of add to an already existing toolbox and as a kind of a filter by which we can understand the world. But if you actually look at the history of this thing called critical race theory, and there's also related approaches which have a lot of similarity with it. Critical race theory, which is associated with um, figures like uh, probably the best known academic figure is Kimberly Crenshaw, some of the popularizers, people like uh, Ibram Kendi. Uh, but then if you go farther back, um, you know, it began in the law schools um, and it came out of a movement that was called critical legal studies. And here you're thinking about figures, for example, the most famous is probably Derek Bell. Um, but it actually goes back farther than that um, in terms of the, the way in which critical legal studies gave rise to critical race theory. So then when you go back to critical legal studies, uh, we see that this also had its root even, roots even farther back in what was called uh, critical theory, and which is also known as the Frankfurt School. If you go farther back into the Frankfurt School, we see that most of the originators of the Frankfurt School were Marxists who were trying to take Marxism into a new direction. Right? So the idea of seeing Marxism in terms of pure class struggle had failed, and now those techniques that were used um, in, you might say, scientific Marxism uh, were now retooled, as it were, in favor of cultural critique, uh, in favor of identity uh, politics, and st studying groups that are other than the classes which had been before that, the main focus of Marxism. So that's one stream that leads into critical race theory. Um, another stream that leads into it are thinkers like Foucault, uh, Derrida, uh, broadly speaking, what you would call postmodern. And so, uh, without getting into all of the details, I would say that one of the, the basis of what I had to say about critical race theory and its relationship to Islam is that critical race theory is not only a tool, it's not only an approach. But as an approach, it has to presuppose certain things about the world. So if you have a set of tools or if you have a set of ideas meant to address certain kinds of problems for human beings, it presupposes an answer to the question, what is a human being? Uh, what is the nature of human knowledge? What is human consciousness? Uh, and then what ought human beings be making as their priorities? What should be the things that we care about the most? And my point was, my, one of my arguments in the piece was that in, insofar as critical race theory offers a description of the world, right? It says something about what human nature is. 
it says something about what the world is, what knowledge is, and what we should do about it. Those are descriptive questions about the world and also moral questions about what we should do and what we should prioritize. And very often in those areas there's a very sharp contrast between Islamic teachings and the teachings of critical race theory which are, as I alluded to earlier, v rooted very much in certain strands of modern philosophy, especially continental philosophy. And what I was inviting people to think about was um, even though there are certain aspects of this which might seem to have some kind of overlap with Islamic sensibilities, one has to really look at the presuppositions that are deeply embedded in it. The moral relativism, the focus on groups instead of individuals in terms of, ident in terms of responsibility, um, the disregard for intention and the complete focus on results, and there's a, certain, there's a kind of a list of these things that goes, but that is the general framework that I was thinking about. So Dr. <coughs> Khalil, um, this explanation that Dr. Jana just gave us, um, can you, if you want to react to that, do that, but I also want to make sure that you, to ask you the question about critical race theory, whether you, you believe that it's a very neutral framework um, uh, for understanding, you know, how things work in society and how power and oppression and things like that work in society, and what do you think about Dr. Jana's uh, point just now? So please go ahead. Yeah, thank you. I think, I mean, I'm, I'm not an expert in critical race theory, but I, um, I certainly um, uh, understand and, and I think Dr. Jana's points are, are, are quite valid. I would add, I think the points around that, that stem from critical race theory as I understand it, um, number one, that there is a large contingent that, contingent that does view critical race theory as um, instrumental, as a tool, as a mechanism. Um, the, you know, critical race theory offers a critique um, of, uh, you know, of liberalism. Um, it, it revises um, different interpretations and understandings about um, American, uh, you know, civil rights and civil rights law, for example. Um, it allows for discourse on, you know, what's commonly referred to now as intersectionality. Um, and dimensions of power. I think those things are, are, are important to consider in today's context, particularly in today's uh, complex world. And so I don't uh, exclusively say or think that critical race theory is the number one uh, you know, methodological and philosophical paradigm that everyone should be operating with. Uh, you know, I'm trained in the Islamic tradition and uh, I'm very uh, affiliated with, you know, I, my leanings lie with, with Islamic methodology and Islamic ways of thinking, you know, as, as understood in our usul and in our tradition. However, as tools and instruments, I think there are creative critiques um, about society, about uh, American society specifically, um, that factor in uh, American history, uh, sociology, um, and certainly uh, racial um, teachings and racialized groups that are part and parcel of understanding uh, the country and the, and the current conditions that we're in today. I think that critical race theory uh, offers um, creative insights, albeit not truth as a whole, but nonetheless a means to pursuing truth and the means to understanding truth. That is very important to take into consideration uh, when you're thinking about institutions and structures of power and power relations and power dynamics um, that have been applied across different 
populations and different groups uh, in the American context, um, particularly as it relates to the um, intersections uh, and, or shall I say, the legacy of religion um, and race in the American context, which is a very unique context that has a unique history that cannot be said about uh, other places uh, in the world, especially in the Muslim world, um, and certainly not in Europe. Um, and so I think given the unique contextual constraints that we're working under, critical race theory emerges as a powerful um, analytical tool to help us think through some of the complex issues uh, that we're dealing with today and to help ask the right questions um, and, to, and to critique uh, answers to those questions. Um, I do not say that it provides answers. I say it helps us provide the right questions, and I think that's a different thing. Dr. John, do you, uh, how does that uh, play with you, what he just said? Because that's an interesting point um, Dr. Khalil is making about the last statement, particularly about it being that raises right questions to ask, at least, if not provide the answers. Um, I think it depends on the kind of questions. Um, if we're, are we asking um, whether or not we have the right priorities? In other words, are we interested in the right kinds of things? Do we care about um, basic fairness? Um, do we care about history? Do we care about people's conditions and so forth? And in that respect, um, insofar as uh, critical race theory and related approaches turn people's attention to issues that need to be paid attention to. I'll give you an example. For example, you know, uh, racism and bigotry uh, within the Islamic community, within the Muslim community in the United States, which is a real problem and is an understudied uh, and certainly a problem that people in the Muslim community have not paid, I would say, adequate attention to and are kind of living in a little bit of denial about. Uh, in terms of the level of, of racism. So insofar as, you know, so you, let's say you read something from critical race theory and it draws your attention to that problem, that's, that's all good and well. But, you know, the way we ask questions, uh, and you might say the heuristics that we use, the kind of that problem-solving techniques that we use to kind of get at those questions, those are then the, what reintroduces or introduces the presuppositions about human nature that can actually wind up being problematic. You know, I mean, to make it more concrete, my, what, what originally impelled me to, th to, to really think about these in a little bit more detail were the, the ways in which Muslims were responding to what's now come to be called Islamophobia um, or anti-Muslim bigotry or, or what have you. And what I was seeing was um, up until about, I don't know, 12, 13 years ago, I remember, I remember really following these kinds of things closely when, um, when we were in... Uh, the uh, the election of the remember the, the run up to the election of Barack Obama. Um, there was a lot of talk about Islamophobia in those days, but what happened in the intervening period was that um, Islamophobia increasingly became characterized as a form of racism, not just that it included racism, but that it simply was a form of racism. And this really began to interest me because in my courses, my first lecture and all of my intro to Islam courses is essentially all the ways in which talk about Islam is kind of fraught with different kinds of biases. And I include, you know, historical biases, theological biases, uh, the fact that, you know, Islam is, an, uh, it, you know, figures into the 
question of the military-industrial complex, um, Zionism, uh, you name it, and including racism. So racism was one of those reasons why you had Islamophobia, you had anti-Muslim bigotry. But what I was seeing was a reduction of all, everything that you could call Islamophobia to being a form of racism. So not that it includes or overlaps with racism, but it simply is racism. And when you look into this, what you see is that this is not a kind of a neutral observation, but rather it's a way of trying to cram in religion into a pre-existing theoretical construct, which, was, which is that of the kind of intersectional critical race theory construct, which is to see a kind of a structure of oppression um, in which people are oppressed according to the, the parameters of, of gender, of sexuality, of class, and of race. And those are the big, you might say, parameters. And where does Islam fit into that? Well, it can't fit into gender. It can't fit into um, um, uh, sexuality or, or, uh, and class. So the closest idea that it fits into is the notion of race. And, when, and, and what you see is this kind of, you might say, habit of reaction amongst many Muslims of trying to transform Islam into a kind of an identity Right, a kind of a traditional kind of sociological group like gender, like sexuality, like race. Um, and as it were, make the intellectual and the moral content of Islam kind of secondary to the whole question, right? And to, so, and to sort of see it as something that you just, you just happen to be, you know, you are Muslim in the same way that you're Native American or that you're a woman or something like that, right? And kind of the reduction of it to an identity. And I found this to be extremely problematic because when you, when you say that all um, anti-Muslim bigotry is a form of racism, you basically turn Islam into a mere identity that has no moral or intellectual content, and that's deeply problematic. Dr. Khalil, um, I'm assuming you um, <clears throat> have some different thoughts on that because we're now talking about something, a term that's been used a lot, I think, um, lately, which is racialization. Um, so could you talk about what that means in the context of Muslims, this idea of racialization. And um, to Dr. Janner's point about uh, sort of taking religion and making it fit this pre-existing critical framework where religion has no space, essentially. Um, so if you could comment on that, but also talk about racialization, because that's what seems yeah. to be happening, right? That's yeah, I, th I think, I mean, Dr. Janner's point is well taken, and he's correct in his... Um, in, in, his, in what he's positing in this, and in, in his uh, trepidation about the idea uh, that Islam is treated as a race, um, uh, and and the, the baggage and the problems that come with that, um, the thing I think that we have to keep also in mind is is that um, the reality amongst uh, when it when it comes to anti-Muslim bigotry, and particularly when it's institutionalized, and when I say institutionalized, I mean in cases like, you know, with immigration tactics and in certain laws that uh, passed or where there are certain institutions that practice or used to practice at least uh, surveillance of Muslim communities. I'm thinking of New York City, for example, and NYPD, but other institutions as well. These things um, uh, render uh, Muslim communities in a racialized way. Now, what do we mean by that? There is a process of racialization where a and the process of racialization occurs 
simply or is based simply in the notion of criminalization of a particular group or a population. The idea that a particular group or a population is a security threat um, um, is a, um, and because they're a security threat, there are a couple of things that happen. Number one, they're otherized. Uh, they are looked at as an other. Um, and as an, uh, by an other, what it means is, and they're looked at as Americans in progress, uh, and never fully American. Um, and while other groups that have also been racialized, um, they, other groups like the Irish, for example, like the Italians, for example, like the Polish, for example, other immigrant groups that have come to the United States, gone through the immigration process, even Japanese, for example, um, they have been racialized as a group, but they have come out of that criminalization process uh, and been uh, wholly embraced as fully American. There's a problem that Muslims. Uh, uh, there's a problem that Muslims cannot do that. Uh, that the American Muslim community has not fully been accepted in this regard. And in this way, it functions. Islamophobia functions as a uh, as a form of racism in this, because the same exact pattern of criminalization, uh, uh, not uh, being fully considered. Uh, 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 American, that same pattern has existed and in many ways still exists with African Americans in this country. Um, and so what happens is that the same challenges and the same problems that um, Muslim Americans um, face uh, in the 21st century with regards to anti-Muslim bigotry and Islamophobia um, mirror in many ways, not in every single way, but mirror in many ways so, uh, some of the struggles that black Americans have gone through. And it's quite interesting when you look at the intersection of black America and Islam in America. In other words, when you look at the birth of Muslim communities in America and you understand the history of the growth and the development and the transformation of American Muslim communities, there, the, there was an origin, it, ori it originated um, in the experiences of black Americans who converted to Islam early in the 50s and the 60s as a community, in other words, as an entire community. Uh, what's been called by in many academic circles, particularly by Dr. Sherman Jackson and some others, as a communal conversion. In other words, America's first experience with Islam and Muslims at the communal level was, was with the black American community. And a lot of its foundational ideas about um, Islam as a group, as a religious group, became formed and fashioned with ideas about black Americans as a racial group. Um, it wasn't until you know the 90s and the post 9-11 era that there was a deeper understanding about the diversity, the ethnic diversity uh, of, of Islam in America, and even the religious diversity of Islam in America. That was a post-9-11 era. But prior to that, um, certainly in the 60s and the 70s and the 80s and the early 90s, um, when it comes to culture, when it came to works um, in, in the communities, when it came to mosques, when it came to, came to uh, um, the average American interaction in the urban context in the Northeastern, uh, uh, cities, um, much of that interaction with Muslims was also, uh, inter and in the South also, was also interactions with black American Muslims as well. Um, and so 
the black American legacy of the struggle for civil rights, the struggle for civil freedoms, the struggle against racial um, uh, prejudice, those same struggles in the black community became those same struggles in the American Muslim community, particularly after 9-11. And the, uh, the prejudices uh, that the American Muslim community began to experience post 9-11 um, in the streets, particularly with law, and in addition to law enforcement, in suburban America, um, those same struggles and pushbacks were experienced by black Americans as well. And the, the parallel to this, this is what's also not really talked about, but is really important to understand. Parallel to this um, reaction, this visceral reaction to American Muslim communities that was based not in religious differences, because the average uh, person who, uh, the average uh, you know, agendas that were pushing back against the rise of Muslims, the growth of Muslims, the perceived takeover uh, of, of, of America by Muslims, the expansion of mosques, etc. All of those things weren't based in a clear understanding of difference in religious dogma or religious identities. It was based in, the, in, in fear and the idea of, um, uh, that these, this particular population was not American enough. And so, and the definition of what was to constitute American enough the, the criteria of that, and this is how Islamophobia becomes racialized, the criteria of what defines American enough is being placed in the paradigm of particularly white American Christianity. And there's been a long legacy of white supremacy um, that uh, has been a part of or run parallel to specifically uh, American Christianity. This idea that, you know, the idea of whiteness, the idea of supremacy, which is based in race, was a product of this country and its history, um, which produced the Civil War, which helped produce um, the uh, segregation in the educational system and Jim Crow and redlining and real estate, on a distorted criminal justice system. But all of these things that uh, helped produce a racialized world in this context, in this country, was also parallel to the formation um, and supported um, by um, um, uh, an Americanized version um, of white supremacist Christianity, particularly in mainline uh, Protestants and uh, evangelical Southerners, uh, evangelical Protestants like Southern Baptists, uh, even Northeast Catholics um, as well. You had the confl conflation of race and religion um, well over, uh, for well over 200 years in this country. And therefore, because of those unique conditions, Islam is treated as a racial category, and most specifically, is treated as a brown or black category, uh, a category of people that is, has trouble fully Americanizing. This is a point that, that, that has to be taken into consideration, and this is why the American Muslim community is still criminalized, i.e. looked at as a security threat, i.e. Looked, looked at as a problem, um, you know, that, that, has to, that, the, that um, the president has to deal with, law enforcement has to deal with, we have to deal with through immigration issues, surveillance, et cetera, and so forth. So it becomes racialized uh, because it's a security threat, because of other issues. Dr. Jahner, um, I, I, I don't want to oversimplify what uh, Dr. Khalil just said, but essentially the idea that 
it's not so much that Muslims who are fighting Islamophobia see Islamophobia as a race, it's that the Islamophobes see Muslims as a race. How would you tackle that? Well, not as a literal, not as a literal race now. No, I understand that, yes. Racialized, that's what I mean, yeah. Yeah, see that I think is one of the key points. So I take, um, I mean, in terms of the history um, uh, that Dr. Khalil described, there's so much there that he mentioned that's worth thinking about. Um, and I agree with just about all of it. I, I think that maybe he uh, de-emphasized the importance, I think, of religious sectarianism as a cause of being of anti-Muslim uh, sentiment, you might say, because, I mean, if you look at American history, I think the theological and religious aspect of things is quite strong. I think it's there. It doesn't explain everything by a long shot. But I think it's definitely there. I mean, when you, I mean, and it's not just against Muslims. I mean, if you look at the way Catholics were treated at the you know the end of the 19th, early 20th century, it's a good example of showing that it's not only um, uh, race. That also had a racial element, of course. When you look at the way the Irish were were um, frequently um, considered a race. But that brings up what to me is a major issue, and that is a kind of precision that I think is necessary around the concept of racialization. And here, I think there's a lot of ambiguity that leads to sometimes I think people who essentially agree sometimes getting caught up because we're not sure exactly what that word means. When I looked into the history of this concept of racialization, which has a very specific history, you know, this, it, it, it began with the notion of racial formation and then racialization came to be used as the term. But what I found in the literature, and I can't claim to have read absolutely everything, but what I found as a general rule was that racialization is what happens, according to the people who, who invented the, the theory, I'm thinking of like Omi and Wenant and others, um, is that racialization is when you actually take a group which had not previously been a race and you consciously and intentionally begin to conceive of them in some way as a race, as a biological race. That is to say that there's something about them, not just as a culture, not just as a set of ideas, but that these uh, people are biologically somehow separable, and and how they're separable is, is different. You know, is it, you know, is it by some vague sense of genetics? Is it uh, some kind of heritage? There's something inherited. There's something that they can't get out of. There's a biological aspect to it, and that that is a condition for what is technically referred to as being racialized, uh, uh, for a population to be racialized. That is to say, the people who are racialized don't have to think of themselves as a race. But the people who are doing the racializing have to, at some level, believe that, the, that these people are actually objectively racially distinguished. I mean, it's, it's, it's a false belief. I mean, it doesn't work. But if they believe it, then it's happening. And that, I think, is the decisive element of it. But what you hear often is the word racialization used to describe, essentially, when race is an important factor in a question. In other words, so if, 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 you know, if people are, um, if, if members of a different race or if there's, a, if there's a question of discrimination or something like that, then the question has become racialized. Or if people are constantly talking about racism in connection with an issue, then people will talk about racialization. Um, but, but I think the real danger is when you have examples of what I would call um, stigmatized, uh, 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 let's say stigma, stereotyping. Um, you know, treating someone as a, you know, xenophobia, let's say, um, and other forms of, let's say, group discrimination, which to my mind don't amount to racism. And so 
what, what you find in the literature is um, that Muslims, in other words, people like me will, will object and say, well, look, Islamophobia is not simply racism because Islam, I apologize, <laughs> the road, that Islamophobia is not racism because Muslims are not a race. The response is usually, uh, yes, but they're racialized and they're treated in ways that mirror racism. But that, to my mind, is not enough. It's not enough that discrimination takes place. It's not enough that um, inequality occurs. It's not enough that people are even criminalized or they're called not American enough or these sorts of things. Those are various forms of bigotry, discrimination, which can in fact be racial. Um, but the fact that people are discriminated against on the basis of their appearance, that's not enough to call what's happening racialization in my view. There has to be a belief on the part of the person who is doing it that, these, that, the, that this person is being discriminated against on the basis of actually being racially distinguished because otherwise you, you can have sectarianism, you can just have xenophobia, you can have these various forms of bigotry. But not every form of bigotry is racism, right? Women, for example, if they're mistreated by men, we don't call that a form of racism just because it results in discrimination. We call it sexism or, or, or misogyny or what have you. And so my, my problem with the use of the word or the concept of racialization as it's applied to Muslims if I, can, if I can just put it briefly, is that Muslims do not consider themselves to be a race, but also those who are anti-Muslim do not consider Muslims to be a race. And so when, when people do um, associate Islam with black and brown people, as you mentioned, which is a major reason, as you mentioned quite correctly, in the American context, in the consciousness of a lot of people, Islam is simply a religion of black and brown people. But that still is not enough to say that Muslims are racialized. All it's saying is that there are, there's pre-existing racial bigotry and that Islam is stereotypically associated with that. But it doesn't mean that it's become racialized. It just means that racism is an important part of Islamophobia. Right? It, it means that it gets mixed up in it. So part of what I'm doing is a kind of a plea for clarity. In other words, when we say racialized or racialization, we should be very precise about what we mean. Right. So, I mean, it's a kind of a funny example, but, you know, I don't know if it's, a, you know, it kind of changes the tone of things here. But there's an episode uh, on that show, Curb Your Enthusiasm, where the, the star character, Larry David, puts on a MAGA hat so that he can uh, be left alone at restaurants. Because anywhere he goes with a red MAGA hat, people immediately don't want to sit next to him. They want to leave him alone. And he gets a kind of a lot of elbow room uh, kind of walking around town, which is what he wants, which is what he wants. And, he, and he's generally being mistreated in a way that's favorable to his kind of, uh, you know, being a misanthrope. Now, you know, he's being treated because of the way he looks, because people are assuming he's a Trump supporter. Uh, he's being discriminated against. People don't want to be near him. They don't want to serve him food. They don't want to sit next to him. They don't want to talk to him. They don't want him to be a customer at their massage parlor and so forth and so on. That's not an example of racialization. It's just an, it's an example of stereotyping, of bigotry and of, and of alienating uh, somebody. So that is, I think, part of the issue here, is, is getting a proper, you might say, using that term consistently and not just using it to say that, well, race is involved. Because nobody can deny that race is, race is a, racism and race is a consideration when it comes to anti-Muslim bigotry. The question is, is, does the mere fact that Muslims are stereotyped as a group, the mere, does the mere fact that they're grouped together and mistreated mean that they are racialized. And I think that's a non sequitur. I don't think it necessarily leads to it. It can happen. 
Um, but I don't think it has happened yet, especially in the American context, because nobody thinks that Muslims are racially uh, a separate group as Muslims. Blacks, are, blacks can be racialized. Um, Bosnians were racialized. The Rohingya can be racialized. Uh, many groups around the world are, in fact, racialized. But that, that's not the same thing as saying that Muslims are racialized, qua Muslims. I think that's an important difference. Yeah, I think that's a, I think that's a very valid, um, uh, that's a good critique Dr. Johnner um, uh, mentioned. I do think when I think about it, um, just add, trying to add to the conversation here, I do think that there is an element, uh, you know, Dr. John is correct in that there is a, a strong element of stereotype, um, stereotyping uh, that is present in anti-Muslim bigotry. I also see, however, a strong, in anti-Muslim bigotry, I also see a very visceral um, um, reaction to American Muslims that's, that um, is not only based in you know, stereotypes, but more importantly, that's based in white supremacy, to be quite frank, um, that is couched as you know, sort of MAGA pro-American. Um, and, and, and in other words, this idea that, you know, w with anti-Muslim um, bigotry and Islamophobic rhetoric, um, there's always the sense that, you know, this is America, I'm American, right? This, the, this idea that uh, they're throwing the country in the face of Muslims, and it's not just about the idea that, you know, the stereotype that all Muslims are immigrants to this country, for example. It is based in the idea, in many cases, when you probe down uh, what what's not being said that, uh, that ends up being the foundation is that, you know, I'm American means I'm a white American Christian, um, and you are not that. In other words, the standard, uh, you know, of the bigotry, uh, the standard of the equation has to be not just in stereotypes, but often cases, it's based in race. It is based in white supremacist behavior. And then this idea of an American Christianity uh, that um, calls allegiance uh, to a predominantly white culture, uh, to a predominantly white existence that Islam is viewed as a threat or Islam is viewed as encroaching in that territory or just not fitting in. For example, you know, if you would go to, you know, um, you know, down in the south, if, if you look at most parts of the south and, and, and where you've got uh, big suburban mosques, for example, um, and those suburban mosques, um, you know, were established through great sweat and tears and blood of the Muslim communities, but there's always been a visceral reaction. There's never been any kind of acceptance that those Muslims belong. Um, and the proof of that is that any kind of expansion for cemetery or trying to build a school or trying to um, uh, uh, expand in any way, shape, form or form is met with not only a reaction from groups and residents, but also Muslim communities have to almost prove um, that they belong, that they conform, not just legally, but culturally. Uh, to the landscape that, see, we donate to the local fire department. See, we have good relations uh, uh, with the city council members. We pay our taxes. Our buildings are open up, right? This reaction that, you know, we are, we operate, our institutions operate at the same level as uh, white American Christian institutions and still 
um, are often reacted against, still are surveilled, still community members are accosted, um, still the, you know, communities can never quite fit in, is, not, uh, is too complicated in my view for just simply stereotypes. Um, oftentimes, particularly with the rise in uh, hate crimes and hate groups that we've currently seen um, uh, in this administration in the times that we're in now, um, the idea, you could, one could argue, I think, that stereotypical views of Muslims uh, are pretty much almost gone. There's, I mean, the idea of the Arab stereotype is non-existent anymore. The idea of, um, you know, uh, a particular uh, group of Muslims uh, doing a particular thing or something nefarious is non-existent. All Muslims are grouped in the same category, right? Muslims in general, uh, whether they're American, whether they're black American, whether they're immigrants, whether they're Arab, whether they're Turkish, whether they're Nigerian, you know, everybody's a problem. Um, I would never forget, I was in a town hall meeting for a community trying to expand, and the entire room, there's about 300 folks, this was in uh, a southern state, uh, about 300 folks where it came to the town hall meeting with U.S. flags and that and there was one black American that was there, only one. And as I was speaking on behalf of the Muslim community, um, uh, this gentleman gets up and asks me, as an African American, and this guy was the only black guy in the room, he's, he's his argument was that Muslims don't belong because this is a Christian nation. And then he invokes a test. He says, let me test you. Right, in public, on camera, he goes, what's your position? Now he's asking me as an African-American uh, man in the South, who's Muslim, and we're in the South. He asked me, he says, what's your position on, and I'm quoting him now, on the Armenian genocide in the Ottoman Empire, right? As if I, as a, <laughs> number one, what does the Armenian atrocities have to do with American Muslims in this mosque trying to expand, right? The idea that, you know, that white Christians were attacked. And I put race in the center intentionally because the moment he mentioned that, because he could have mentioned something else, but the moment he invoked something that was very um, sinister in the eyes of, of, of many Americans, this idea that the Ottoman Empire is this, you know, boogeyman and they were attacking this this Christian minority, and for a black man to raise this in a room full of white Christians and, and Muslims who were trying to expand, um, and that particular question got the just resounding applause. Um, and when I went to speak about that, um, denying its relevance to the current issue, um, I was told uh, to go back home, right? As an African-American, I was told to go back home. Now, I'm not putting that as, I'm not putting that as an example to say I was wrong. I'm saying this is, here I am as an African-American Muslim, and I was known that I was, you know, I'm not from a different part of the world, but I'm told to go back home um, uh, in a context where I'm defending Muslims' presence in America as an equal home for American Muslims. And I think that reaction is not about stereotypes, right? Um, I, and I'm not saying that that's the exception that proves the rule necessarily, but I am saying that I think we are seeing more and more of cases where people, where the reaction is based in a type of supremacy that is religious, but also racialized from the vantage point of religion. And I think that that may be 
um, one area uh, or one aspect of why many Muslims are positing the idea of racialization. Um, and so I just wanted to add that to the conversation. No, I think uh, those, that's a very interesting um, story that you, you told, but I, I, I didn't want to give the impression that uh, I think that it can just all be understood as stereotyping. Um, actually, my point is supported by what you said, which is that I think that uh, there are different forms of supremacism. And so, you know, if you're, there's Christian supremacism, and I think there are forms of Christian supremacism which are not that heavily racial. I mean, there are people like that. I mean, they really are Christian supremacists. And if they're racist as well, it's not the overriding factor in their, in their supremacism, you might say. And then there are racists who have this patina of Christianity on them, uh, you know, where, where Catholicism is more of a kind of cultural identity instead of a religion, for example. And but the you know and so they speak in a language of Catholicism and you know defending the West and these kind of things. But really, what they're motivated by, you can sort of tell with these people, is they're motivated by racism. But there's also um, different form. There's also a war propaganda on behalf of the military-industrial complex, where in a sense the central motivation of the people who are causing trouble is just greed. You know, and they wouldn't care what the race of the person is. They're just sort of they're just attacking the group. That if they can propagandize the population enough, they can frame them as being intrinsically dangerous, and uh, cash in um, on that prop on that war propaganda. Um, in the for, for example, just to speak concretely, the case of Zionism, uh, American Zionism, which in its extreme forms, uh, especially you know far right Zionism is a major component of American Islamophobia. Uh, now, is that racist? I think there's racial elements to it. I think there's ways in which the Palestinians are, in fact, and Palestinians and by extension Muslims are racialized. But I think there's an element to it that's also not racial. I think there's an element to it which has something to do with the particular history of Jews in Europe, uh, in North America, you know, the, the, the role of Israel in the, in the wake of the, you know, the Nazi extermination campaign and so forth and so on. So I'm not trying to deny that there's different forms of supremacism. What I'm saying is that not all forms of supremacism and bigotry are racial in nature. And so we're better served as Muslims if we never try to dismiss it. I mean, people do this. I mean, I, I mean, this is something that Muslims do. Oh, well, the Prophet Muhammad wasn't racist. He had Bilal, and we had all these people, and so we solved the problem a long time ago. I mean, this is that's not serious, I, I don't think. Um, but uh, you know, but to to sort of reduce and to try and cram in all forms of anti-Muslim sentiment, whether it's religious, whether it's kind of cultural, historical, um, whether it's even principled. You know, I mean, some uh, uh, you know a person on the left who who is, let's say, a, a thoroughgoing principled liberal and who has big problems with, let's say, kind of a principled objection to the way that Muslim social life is organized. I mean, they can take that to an extreme. You can have a kind of a fanatical liberalism. You can have a fanatical scientism. You can have different forms of fanaticism, which makes, them be, which makes these people see Islam as being a, an, uh, an adversary because, in fact, Islam is against some of the things that they're for. Um, but it's, I, I think it's gratuitous or unnecessary to say that all of that animus is somehow motivated by a racial supremacism. 
So my idea is, look, if, if you take racism or racialization as a factor off the table for various reasons, you're, you're missing a big part of the picture. And, I, and I, as I said in the article, I think in some cases, the racism is such a big comp component of Islamophobia that essentially is racism. Right, that you know, in, in a sense, Islamophobia becomes racism. Like when you when you look at the way, for example, some people react to like Ilhan Omar or something like that. I mean, it's impossible to to miss, you know, the 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 the, the, the line connecting that with other forms of pre-existing racism. What I object to is the theoretical impulse, the philosophical impulse, to somehow jump on a bandwagon of intersectional. Um, anti-white supremacism, hoping that somehow we can benefit from the already existing, you might say, framework and kind of apparatus that's already been laid down uh, for many decades where, you know, there's already, a, I mean, what's, what's a better thing to be these days than anti-racist in some quarters? So if we can make being, being anti, being racist if we can make Islam, being anti-Muslim, I'm sorry, if we can make being anti-Muslim a form of racism, and if anti-racism, to be anti-racist is such a good thing, that's better for Muslims. That's good, that's good for us as a, as a community. But I think that comes at a cost. It comes at the cost of reducing Islam to a mere identity, right? It takes away the moral and the intellectual conditions of what it means to be a Muslim, and it just basically, we become one of the kind of array of identities who are, as it were, fighting together against this kind of, this single structure of oppression. And I think that's unnecessary. I think that's a philosophical problem. Um, because what happens is, I think especially with young people, if they ingrain in themselves the habit of whenever they see an instance of somebody being against them or their religion or a religious teaching or something like that, to immediately take that and to, and to catalog it under racism, to immediately catalog it as a form of racism, what they're going to eventually get in the habit of thinking of is that nobody could be against them or their religion or disagree with them for any interesting reason whatsoever. Right? It couldn't be because Islam has some interesting things to say about human nature. It couldn't be because you know, Muslims have a way of life that's different. It couldn't be because Islamic values are somehow a competitor in the, in the, you might say, the arena of, of values. It's simply for this very non-intellectual, non-moral reason that you know, you're against Muslims for the same reason that somebody is against a certain accent in the workplace or against a certain hairstyle appearing or a certain tone of skin. And that, I think, is damaging. You know, it's not immediate. It doesn't immediately destroy anyone's religion. It doesn't immediately make anyone lose faith. But it has a kind of a deteriorating effect, I think, on the overall you might say, cultural and intellectual landscape of Muslims. I want to uh, <clears throat> uh, interject here and make one observation, then I want to have a, a question for both of you, but I want to get back to religion a little bit. The observation I have is simply that we're talking about how Muslims are racialized in one sense, but it seems to me, and I don't know, if Dr. Jana, um, this is what you were getting at, but this seems to me that more, um, the more we talk about Americans and pro-Americans as white supremacists, we are then, aren't we then also racializing them? You know, to the point that Dr. Jana was saying that there, there, there may be religious supremacy as opposed to white supremacy. Um, so I'm just making that observation to think about, but I think what I'll get back to is really bring religion back into this 
Dr. Jana, you had said in your article, I think, um, you know, you talked about the power of religion and its capacity to transform individuals, the idea of individual agency, that we have that, um, and that there was something, <clears throat> if we are to understand racism as a structural or systemic problem, we're somehow leaving our individual agency behind, we're leaving our religion behind. Um, I want to, uh, to have you talk about that, but also would like to, to know Dr. Khalil's um, views on that issue as well, because Dr. Khalil also uh, happens to be an imam as well, so I'd like to get his views on that. This idea of individual um, agency. Yes. And whether, yeah, go ahead. Well, this is not, um, this is part of the broader cultural conversation, I would say. Um, you know, um, one, of the, one, of the, one of the main critiques that's becoming more common uh, against, uh, I, you know, critical race theory, you know, what people now have come to call kind of wokeness. Uh, I don't know if that's considered to be derogatory or, or what have you, but, you know, kind of the social justice slash woke slash critical theory way of looking at things. One of the main criticisms, of course, is that, in fact, it, it, it's not only a question of, uh, the, of de-emphasizing the individual in favor of the group, but there's this, there's this sense of that there's no universal human experience, that there's no universal human nature, um, that the real operators of history and of culture are not individuals, they're actually groups, and they're not even really conscious groups. These are, they're not rational groups. These are groups who are really functioning according to the dictates of power relationships. And so there's a reduction of analysis away from individual intention towards group impact. And on this particular point, you see a very stark contradiction with some pretty basic Islamic teachings. I mean, if, if Islam is about anything, it's about individual intention, and that it's in, intention matters, right? You can't hide behind, you know, so-called good intentions, but intentions do matter, um, and in fact, they're decisive. And to, on the one hand, practice a religion that tells you that the intention of an, in, an, in, an individual's intention is what matters that a person's intention can be changed, that their ignorance can be rectified, that their bad moral character can be corrected. On the, you know, so on, on the one hand, you're doing that, but on the other hand, then you're erasing any kind of concern with individual intention, and you're focusing entirely in your intellectual work on group impact, right? You're not looking at intentions. It doesn't matter if people intend to be racist or not. Um, it doesn't matter what their personal opinions happen to be or not. Nobody, nobody wants to be a racist. They might say, they will say, look, it doesn't matter. What matters is impact. And so if you have disparate um, results, if more people are occupying, let's say more people of one race occupy these roles than another, it's, it's evidence of racism, right? And so there's this kind of blurring between racism as a form of ignorance, as a form of bad intention, versus racism as a bad result. And we used to distinguish sharply between these two things. But I think the problem with uh, critical race theory is that there is not just an implicit, there's an explicit rejection of the notion of a kind of a universal human nature that we can appeal to, right? And that's part of its anti-liberalism. And in my view, it's a form of anti-rationalism, right? It's, it, it's, it's a denial of the, of the notion that there's a universal human capacity of reason whereby people can communicate, people can understand each other, uh, people can uh, 
change their minds in decisive ways. People can be individually reformed. And there's a focus on power and also a rather pessimistic view on, on, on power. And that what we, think as, uh, what we think of as being problems of misunderstandings or of ignorance are really just questions of power. And when you get even deeper into it, we haven't done much of this in this conversation, but when you get deeper into it, you see that the apex philosophers who you might say are at the taproot of critical race theory, um, you know, the, the idea that there, there's an individual who has beliefs and who has opinions and who thinks and then after having thought those thoughts then acts in the world is considered to be naive, right? The underlying philosophy is that what we take to be the subject, meaning the I, what we take to be the self, what we take to be the, the rational faculty is itself constructed by power. So if you, if you think that what you're doing is having an objective opinion or having an individual intention of, of not being racist or what have you, that's really just a, you know, a manifestation of the self that is constructed by power. This is, I could, you cannot think of a more antithetical view than that in relation to Islam. I think that's deeply problematic. Why, my, my, my basic question, if I can put it this way, why do I have to believe that that's how human beings work in order to care about racial bigotry? This is the question I have you know, for people who are doing critical race theory. Why do I have to abandon rationality? Why do I have to abandon universality? Why do I have to think of myself only as belonging to a particular identity group in order to be able to make any kind of progress on this? I mean, that's, that I think is an important issue. It needs to be talked about more. Yeah, Dr. Khalil, if you would address that question that uh, Dr. Jana just identified, I'm really, really curious about your thoughts. This is what I was getting at earlier, I think, which is this idea that as individuals, we're sort of trapped in our identity group profile, if you will, and that religion and Islam, certainly in all religions, really, um, uh, the idea of intentions, the idea of us having each one of us having moral agency, so to speak, how, would, how do you see that, and is, is that a problem um, given the structural way to look at things, the identity groups way to look at things? Well, it's true that, uh, you know, intent plays a major role in the Islamic tradition, but uh, so too does consequences of your actions. Uh, both are, in, are, are, are highly invoked. It's not just the intention that is governed from the Shari'i point of view, it's also consequence. Um, and in this public uh, sphere, we look at consequence. We don't always look at intent unless it has to do with the um, in the area of the criminal law and, and, and breaking public uh, norms and stuff and that's that's at the perspective of the individual but if we're talking about structural ra uh, racism and structural Islamophobia and structural anti-Muslim bigotry and the harms of institutions um, that's that's governed by the outcome that's governed by the actions right of, of an institution. Um, intent plays no plays no direct the intent of one person um, is irrelevant if the harm is done. So, for example, the Islamic understanding of you know how harm is adjudicated, the the fact that we are supposed to be people who you know kafil who 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 ward off harm uh, when there's harm in society. Uh, whether or not the person intended to do it or not is irrelevant. The harm has to be dealt with. Um, and so what structural racism is about is about looking at the harm that an institution does to society. Whether or not that institution intended to do it or not um, is, is, is irrelevant. It has to do with what happened. And so what, what I as an individual or anybody else as an individual 
uh, who, who identifies as a Muslim, what's, where that has a definitive role is how we think about harm and, and how we think about, more importantly, the reaction to harm, right? How do we, what do we do after that? Uh, do we take to the streets and protest? Do we spray graffiti on businesses and break, you know, and, and loot for, you know? Do we write letters to a congressman? Do we pray Salat al-Hajjah and istikhar? I mean, how do we react, right? Individually, uh, our actions are governed by intentions, yes, sort of, to, especially in the realm of ritual worship, but collectively, as a collective, as a group, when I hit the streets, when I'm in public, then uh, it, there's a switch there from intention to rights, right? Rights. I mean, even the Prophet ﷺ spoke about, uh, you know, haqq tariq the rights of the road. Um, and so the reason rights is a discourse in the public sphere um, is because we don't know everybody's intentions and we can't discern everybody's intentions. We've got to go on people's actions and, and the consequences of those things. And this is where power relations enter into the dynamics uh, because it's one thing if I claim a right and another person claims a right, but then, you know, if I claim my, a right and then a police officer claims a right and they've got, you know, a law and they've got the gun and a badge, that's, that's going to play out differently. Or, or if I'm a Muslim and a person with hijab and I claim a right and then uh, and I'm in, you know, going through immigration, uh, that, that may, I may not feel like I can exercise my rights in, in a certain way because of power dynamics. So um, structural, you know, when we talk about structural racism and structural Islamophobia, there is a reality to that that has to do with power dynamics and has to do with exploitation or potential, let's call it, potential, the, the potential to exploit um, from institutions to the public um, that is akin to an idea of supremacy. Um, you know, supremacy based on whatever. It could be supremacy based on race. It could be supremacy based on um, the notion of freedom, even, that in the name of freedom, we have the right to constrict your freedoms, or in the name of freedom or perceived security, um, what we're going to do is going to, you know, we are going to dominate this neighborhood or surveil this neighborhood or act in this way or pass these laws or restrict this person based upon profiling them in a particular way. That then could be informed based upon a stereotype or a perception uh, and, what, and, and whatnot. In, individuals, when they're part of an institution, have no intent. Um, and so that's the problem that we get into. I mean, I might intend to do a, to, to 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 follow the law and to be a right person, but the pressures of the institution and 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 the social pressures of conformity uh, may actually influence my behavior to act in and to be in conformity with an institution, particularly if that institution um, has its own way of formulating its own intentions, its own cultures, its own myths, its own w or, uh, ways of operations and practices. It's very interesting that in the Islamic, um, you know, when we think about the, the history of madrasas, for example, right, um, or just in general, the history of awqaf, um, endowments in the Islamic tradition. Um, in, in the Islamic tradition, awqafs, endowments, are essentially, for all practical purposes, an abstract individual, but, but 
uh, it's not quite like an abstract individual in the same way that, that for example, a modern-day corporation is today. Right? The Islamic tradition didn't go that far. It didn't go that far in, in identifying, for example, a masjid or a madrasa or any type of endowment as a real person. It was an institution, it was a structure, but it didn't go that far to assign it a type of personhood. Here, it's quite well known, we assign personhood to status, to corporations, to institutions, etc. So theoretically, theoretically, um, institutions and structures could have intents, right? Theoretically, yes. Theoretically, you know, police departments, theoretically, nonprofit organizations, theoretically, municipalities and federal government could, you know, institutions could have intent, theoretically, yes. Um, but again, when we get into the public sphere, discerning intent is really difficult. So that's where rights come in. Um, and, and, and we look at what has happened, what the, what the maqasid or the maqsad, what the objective was, or what the impact, excuse me, what the impact was. Um, and so because we look at impact socially um, instead of intent, we look at is the impact of this policy equal in this community to that community? or to this class of folks, to this class of folks. Um, whether or not it was intended to do so is irrelevant, but because, as an, and as, so I think what I'm trying to say is, the, there's, uh, it's correct that as an individual I'm regulated by intentions, but as an institution they're regulated by impact. And I think there's a, that difference um, uh, brings forth uh, a different set of analysis when looking at both. No, I, I, I'm completely in agreement with that. It's undeniable. You know, you, um, uh, the idea that you have um, built into institutions, even when every individual in, in that institution is trying to do the right thing, it may be that the, the guidelines, the heuristics, uh, old habits, what have you, result in inequalities at the end of it. You know, so everybody involved can be trying to do their best, but it, despite everyone's best efforts, the institution winds up effectively acting as if it were a discriminatory individual, you might say, right? So I'll give you an example just from, you know, from hiring in, in academia. You know, if you're, a, if you're in a liberal arts uh, setting, you could be looking at candidates. And, you know, if you're new to it and you haven't really been doing it for a while, you might look at these candidates and say, oh, look at that, this person came from a liberal arts college. Oh, so let's let's put her in there. She probably would do really well here at a liberal arts college because she kind of has the same background. It would be able to relate to the students. Um, not thinking about the fact that people from liberal arts colleges who go to liberal arts colleges, as opposed to let's say public universities, tend to have a certain demographic profile. And so what you're doing by accident, by trying to do right by the students and not being conscious of it, is you're you're you're, you're arriving at unequal outcomes, right? What you're doing is you use the wrong criterion, trying to do something good. And what winds up happening is that you wind up excluding a whole population or de-emphasizing a whole population. Now, I think common sense tells you that that individual person was not being racist. They just, they just weren't really conscious of all of the factors involved. They, they did something. And if you told them, they would, they would immediately change their minds about it. Um, the effect was unequal, right? Now, but what I'm seeing today is that the, the distinction between the individual's intention in that particular case, let's say someone on the hiring committee, and the fact that you have led to unequal outcomes, they're both called racist. And if it's getting to the point now where if the person who says, hey, wait a minute, no, I wasn't being racist, 
I was just, uh, I thought I was making a good decision on the part of the institution. Now we've gotten to the point where this is called, um, if the person happens to be white, white fragility. Uh, well, you can't, you know, you can't be, you can't just not be racist, you have to be anti-racist. So your failure to adequately account for the fact that, let's say, large public universities have more uh, demographic minorities is a failure of you to be sufficiently anti-racist. I mean, it does get abusive. And I think the very common sense distinction between individual intention in the moment, and you might say long-term intention, in terms of you know making the proper preparations, making sure that you've planned out your institution correctly, making adjustments as you go along, having an eye for uh, results, that's also part of it. But what's happening now is something a little bit not quite so logical, and it's happening amongst Muslim intellectuals, it's happening in Muslim academia, where that individual intention, oh, I wonder if he knows or she knows that, you know, by saying so, you're making all sorts of assumptions. Let me point that out. Now you're getting these kind of automatic knee-jerk reactions that say, oh, well, oh, you're a white man, I know what you think. Uh, you're a, you're a black woman, I know what you think. And this is stereotyping of the worst kind. To simply, on the basis of knowing that someone has a certain color of skin and com less, or comes from a certain economic background, that you know what they think about a given subject, I think that's too far. I think that's too much. And, it, and it's happening, unfortunately. This, what you, you see this happening quite a lot, quite abusively, um, at the not just on social media, but amongst intellectuals. And I think that's very dangerous. And I think part of the reason for that is that some intellectuals have incorporated, internalized, a way of looking at people based upon kind of critical theory, critical race theory, what have you, um, in which because they're convinced that these identities, gender, sexuality, race, and so forth, because they are the real actors in history, because they are the real generators of the subject, that if you know which identity somebody comes from, you, you, all, you, in a sense, automatically know what they're thinking or where they're going with their argument or something like that. And this, to me, is, that's, to me, that's just stereotyping. That's the worst kind of thing to do. And what you described, I think, is the right approach, you know, to distinguish between uh, effects, which are real, and intentions. And often those two don't meet up. And part of intention is to correct your intention when you see bad results. Yeah, yeah, I agree. Well said, well said. Well said. I do think that that you're you're right. There are abuses and and certainly excesses uh, and extremes, and we have to be very careful um, because you're right. I mean, on the one hand, I could easily you know because I come from the south and I meet somebody else that comes from the south, even the same city. I could always I could assume that you know yeah I you know we're, I know how you I know how it is. I know what you know what you're thinking. But they could be socialized in a completely different uh, a way and. Um, and you're right, I think, and I think the upshot of what you're saying, and uh, I hope that we can agree, uh, certainly on, on, I mean, I agree definitely with the premise, and I, I just, uh, to bring this home, so to speak, I hope that from a, you know, I think from a spiritual, from a, uh, an Islamic uh, spiritual point of view, from, not even spiritual, from our deen, uh, we're supposed to be a middle, a middle nation, you know, not, not, not people of extremes. Uh, and we're supposed to provide alternatives. Um, and, I, and what I hear you doing is, 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 is calling for an, altern you know, an alternative to conformity, um, even when we react against um, different forms of Islamophobia and structuralism. When we, when we want to critique racism, uh, we need to be truthful about it and as people of truth. 
uh, that should be very important to us. Um, so let me, uh, um, we're, we're running out of time, so I want to get back to, and ask you both a, one last question um, that is kind of picks up on what Dr. Khalil just said also. Um, it's really, um, you know, <clears throat> what if you were to give the people, the Muslims and others, people of faith who are trying to work for social change of any kind out there, um, if they're, you know, people who are fighting anti-Muslim bigotry, who are seeking racial justice, uh, who are working for other, other causes as well, but religious people I'm talking about who also feel that they need to build alliances with other social, larger social change movements that are secular. What advice do you have for these people of faith in regarding how to work for change and still work within the Islamic tradition, within the Islamic teachings? What advice would you have for people who are trying to, to, to work towards that? Uh, Dr. John, if you can go first, that'd be great, and then we'll have good Dr. Khalil. That's a, it's a hard question to answer because you know everyone's individual capacities are so different and their talents are different. Um, and their opportunities are different. I would say that one should be careful of falling into a kind of a mode of hyperactivism uh, when it comes to uh, dealing with some of these Islamic issues uh, and beginning with the outward um, and beginning with correcting other people uh, and so forth before one is kind of adequately prepared oneself. Uh, there's a book that came out recently, which I think is uh, really good on this topic. It's uh, it's a, a short book written by Dawood Walid. I think it's called Toward Sacred Activism or something. And, and I think that's an important uh, perspective for uh, Muslims to look at. You know, because what he does is he, he incorporates um, the need for inner preparation and also just inner struggle for its own sake, obviously. And he balances that with uh, with outward activism and how you know how to relate that inward state to outward action, and I think that kind of uh, discourse, that kind of conversation, is something Muslims need to have a little bit more of. What we tend to do is we see these kind of ready-made uh, activisms, whether it's anti-racist or it's let's say anti-imperialist, uh, you know, anti-militarist. And uh, we kind of jump on board. Uh, we want to lend a hand. We want to do the right thing. And, you know, without being properly centered in the beginning or being properly centered throughout. So I think a kind of a balance between inward and outward is always important. I think people should give themselves room to be creative. You know, not everyone's going to do the same thing. I think we live in an age where you, you, you sh probably should not be waiting around for someone else to tell you if this thing that you're going to do is the right thing or not. I mean, I think, I think as long as a person is centered spiritually, as long as a person is not going to depart from their own principles, very often what needs to happen is something that they're going to have to come up with on their own. They're going to have to kind of do it creatively. And sometimes that requires a little bit of a thick skin and not listening to naysayers because no matter what you do as a Muslim, somebody's going to pop up and tell you, oh, what you're doing is wrong, oh, that's already been tried, oh, you don't know what you're doing, no, you should follow me. You know, and a lot of the most successful people that you see you know, in the Islamic community doing things, are, they're usually people who have a pretty thick skin and they don't really pay attention to naysayers. So that's, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not an expert in these kinds of things. I'd really be interested in what Dr. Khalil has to say, but those are some of my thoughts. 
Dr. Khalil, you were uh, <clears throat> very well positioned to talk about this, I think. Uh, you're also a chaplain, you're an imam, so <laughs> go ahead. Yeah, I think, thank you, Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. I think um, what I would say is um, if you're going to be um, an, you know, active and, and, and advocate uh, for what's right and be a, uh, someone who adopts the path of um, pursuing justice, trying to make the world a better place as a vocation, um, it's important to, to, to be strong in your identity and who you are as a Muslim um, and to, to, to learn. Um, you cannot, it's very difficult to speak about truth and you're not clear about what truth, you know, what Allah Ta'ala said. So as a Muslim, we have to be true to our, our, ourselves, meaning who we are and our teachings. Um, otherwise, we become prone to being, um, to falling into the teachings of everybody else, right? I mean, this, um, we are not meant to be people who follow critical race theory, nor are we meant to be people who follow, uh, you know, liberalism. We're not supposed to be uh, leftists um, or progressives for that matter. Um, I would even argue Democrats or Republicans. We're supposed to be Muslims. Um, and that means that we have to understand um, um, our own teachings so that we can think independently within our own paradigm, within our own framework. And we can, so that when truth comes, we can see it as where there are consistencies with our teachings and where there are inconsistencies with our teachings. Um, and so we must learn. Um, and that's a lifelong pursuit, but we get better at it. Uh, in the meantime, Allah, Allah Ta'ala has not asked us to wait till we become, you know, the t best scholars in the world to, uh, to be active. Um, start in your own environment, start with your own selves, um, um, and get involved with people who are trustworthy, um, who have, I mean, Dr. Jonner mentioned uh, uh, Imam Daoud's book, Towards Sacred Activism. Um, you know, start with that text um, and learn bit by bit. Um, but I think the most important thing I would like to say, if I were to narrow down to one thing, really, the most important thing in my view um, is Quranic literacy. Um, Quranic literacy, I think, is the most important thing. And I don't mean to exclude the Sunnah. I'm not trying to do that. Um, of course, the Sunnah is, is equally as important. But, you know, we've got that book on our shelves for a reason. Um, we can't be literate in every other theory and be ignorant about the Qur'an. So any opportunity you have as a young Muslim uh, in, the, in, the, in this climate, in this context, any opportunity you have to improve your literacy about the Qur'an, that is, you'll never go wrong. And that will be critically essential uh, for you to navigate your way in life uh, in whatever path you choose. So that's the most important thing uh, in my view. Uh, Dr. John, if I may really quickly, I just want to say thank you very much. I truly benefited from our engagement and I sincerely I learned a lot from you. Uh, so thank you very, very, very much. Alhamdulillah. I feel the same way. Thank you so much. Thank you. Alhamdulillah. Thank you. And that's a great note. Um, I want to thank you, gentlemen. This has been a great conversation. We could go on thank for a you. long time, I think. Thank you. Thank you. Plenty of issues to talk about. Um, so thank you for joining us today. And I want to also thank our audience for joining us today. And for those who are not familiar or getting familiar with Renavashio, please um, go check out our 
website renovatio.zaytuna.edu where you can find Dr. Janner's article that uh, launched this conversation today, but also lots of other essays and articles by different scholars of different faiths, and also uh, lots of podcasts and videos. Salaamu Alaikum. Thank you.